Today on The Black Goat, we discuss science in an age of skepticism and whether trust in science is what we should be aiming for, and a letter about applying for jobs when you're not passionate about teaching. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tollett. We have big news. Normally, we record over Skype, but since all the hipsters now are doing Zoom, we're recording on Zoom instead. Um, I'm sure you can all hear the difference. Uh, I feel like I... I don't know about you guys. I feel like I live my life on Zoom now. I've I've been in... This is like my fourth Zoom call today and I it's also become my social life too so like yeah I've had like drinks with friends over zoom a couple times now and it's just kind of uh you know I'm getting a little tired of looking at my computer all day every day but uh, I guess that's what life is now I'm very polyamorous when it comes to my um (laughs) my video conferencing software I think I may have used four different media for or softwares for video conferencing today i've used zoom and skype and facetime and then like a special um platform that we used for this uh conference that we did with society street um so yeah i'm becoming well versed in video conferencing platforms um but yeah i mean um yeah, Sanjay, I, I have like very mixed feelings about my computer and my phone right now. Um, so partly I'm like so grateful to have them because it's amazing to be able to like see the faces of my parents every day and to like talk to my friends. And, you know, there are like ways to feel like my relationships with people have some kind of normalcy. Um, I haven't seen like a, a real life person since I, um, since I got back from California. So I guess that was on Saturday. Um, so it, I'm like extremely grateful for that. Um, but then I'm also resentful because I like, yeah, I just spend all of my time in front of a computer or a phone. Um, and while it's much, much better than not having it, of course, it definitely feels like a, a step down for in, from in-person communication I was like so yesterday I um, had a FaceTime or Skype or something lunch with my friend Andrea and her two kids Um, and that was like great I mean it was like really fun to see her kids and like have them do goofy stuff on um, on video chat with me and stuff like that but also it's like oh it's just you know like this is sort of an obvious thing to say but it's you know, it's really sad too. Like I like really want to hug them and like pick them up in the air and stuff like that. And I can't do that. And I mean, you know, they're not my kids. Like, um, so I, I have it, I have it much, much better than most people. Um, but it's still sad. Yeah. I was, I was, I was thinking, you know, the hugging thing in particular. So there, you know, I was sort of, I mean, there's this really terrific article by Ed Young in The Atlantic about sort of the future and and kind of like, where is all this going? And I was in a much narrower sense, but I was thinking about this. I was, and I, I was thinking just like, at whatever point they lift the like, you know, social distancing, shelter in place thing, and you're actually allowed to see your friends again. I was like, there's still probably like we're gonna have to be cautious i was like are we not going to be allowed to hug our friends when we see them again because uh-huh. i was just for some reason i don't know i got stuck on this idea i was thinking like when i finally get to see my friends face to face i'm gonna want to like give them a big hug and i'm right gonna, like, but but maybe we're not you know maybe they're gonna say like okay you can go out again but you still have to maintain six feet or just don't do physical contact or whatever right and it'll be super weird to if this lasts two or three months to like suddenly go out and see somebody you haven't seen face to face in months and be like waving at them from across the room yeah that's really interesting and i mean it does feel like that would be like a logical step towards eliminating social distancing but it's also interesting to consider like which which kinds of interactions are sort of like unsatisfactory um i was talking to a friend of mine who i've been um i've been skyping with most days she lives in denmark and she was saying that she feels like she's like in a like a low-key fight with all of her friends because before she stopped she stopped seeing her friends completely she was seeing them on these like 
hikes and walks and stuff like that where they were trying to keep a certain distance and they weren't touching um and she said that it feels like so unnatural like she was talking to a friend of hers who had just broken up with his girlfriend and and she was like well i wish i could give you a hug but i just have to verbally express my sympathy for you because i can't touch you um and those kinds of interactions i think are so like we're conditioned to to feel like that's a cold way to interact with our friends i think yeah, I was wondering if it'll feel weird if it goes on long enough, if then hugging or like other things will feel weird for a short while when, when right. we adjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I can't remember if this was Ed's article or something else was saying that like just the whole idea of how we interact might change, you know, like like that this might be causing these sort of permanent societal changes, just that like handshakes might you know, when like 50 years from now, handshakes might be this like old timey thing that people used to do, like wearing a fedora or something. You know what I mean? That like that depending how this plays out over the next year, two years, whatever, um, people might. I mean, we might just jump back into everything we did before. But if it lasts long enough, we might it might really rearrange social interactions. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think for non-social stuff, like for, for non-personal social stuff, like work stuff and interacting with grocery store clerks or other things like that. I think we're developing ways to do that in a way that's less, I think could be less intensive even in regular life, like being able to consult with your doctor over Skype or have therapy mm-hmm. sessions over Skype or things like that. Like sometimes you want the face to face, but opening up that possibility more could be good for people in cases where that's much more convenient or the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. There could be a silver lining to that. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about, like, I see all these people uh, doing new studies. There's a spreadsheet of new social science studies that are happening on related to coronavirus. We can put the link. It's at GitHub is the best way to access it. Um, And, like, I watch that list and I'm like, wow, I'm so lazy. Like, I, I haven't started a new project related to coronavirus. I've barely maintained basic, you know, progress and not not falling apart on my other projects things like that and then today i saw farid anvari wrote a posted on Archive a comment on a preprint of a study that's looking at coronavirus social science stuff and his preprint was like three or four pages long it's quite detailed but still like arguably less work than running an entire study and writing it up but so valuable like he pointed out some mismatches between the pre-registration and the results and other stuff like that. And then I thought, oh, that I think I could do. I think I don't think I have it in me to like design and run a new study. But we also need people to critique and point out, you know, flaws and things like that in the work that other people are doing, right? If everybody just does research and no one's critiquing or evaluating it, that would be a problem too. So it it was kind of reassuring to me to remember that like we need a lot of different roles in this and whatever you have the energy for whether it's like science communication with the public or critiquing other people's work or doing work or um, just supporting the other people who are doing those things by lending them a hand with grading or childcare or whatever like there's just so many different ways you can support and it, it would be bad if everybody were just collecting data and reporting it Um, so that I don't know maybe that's rationalization but that was my way like Calabra at Calabra where we um, are participating in the rapid review of registered reports so we are waiving APCs and trying to do a one week um, turnaround for stage one reviews of registered reports that are related to coronavirus and so getting that up and running was like a bit of work and so I feel like I did my part by like doing that but there's just so many different like being a reviewer on those could be a way to contribute if you feel like that's with the bandwidth that you have or like there's just so many different ways and they don't all have to be as big as designing and running a study yeah and i you know i i mean i think that the idea that i mean one one thing i would say is like you know if if what you do is something to, to contribute that's one thing but if you're like just sort of looking for a way you can make what you do relevant you know there there's like it's certainly tempting to like overhype to overplay the importance of, of things or whatever but also like i feel like this is i mean for a long time 
within psychology, you know, there'd often be these discussions about like criticism and why do the critics have to be so negative and criticism is just destructive and why can't you create something instead of just knocking things down? And I, I feel like nothing, th this time has made it so incredibly abundantly clear how important critique is because there's so much misinformation as people are making policy decisions based on science where lives are at stake. And, it, you know, you saw this happen with the UK where they had this, you know, scientific advisory board that initially was sort of coming up with and they were doing some epidemiological modeling and there was it was, it was a little unclear. It seemed like their behavioral science unit was also sort of part of this. And 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 as soon as that stuff and, and initially when they started saying, so our plan is we're going to kind of take it easy at the beginning and people are like, what? And once they put that, their modeling out there, then, you know, people, epidemiologists who do modeling were able to critique it and say, no, this is not a good plan. And people, you know, like people's lives are at stake with a lot of this stuff. And there's shitty studies about, you know, drugs that won't actually work. And, and there have been a run on some drugs because, you know, people think that they're going to prevent it, which they won't and things like that. It's, it's just... It's abundantly clear how like the the things that make science work criticism you know peer review you know publishing things all these things are that make science science and not just somebody shooting their mouth off are hugely important right now because we need that credibility and quality and and if we lose it you know nobody's well and this is i guess our topic later today or whatever mm -hmm. but you know like we're you know um uh, uh you know we're not going to continue to earn people's you know credibility or whatever if if we don't do those things so mm -hmm. sitting on your ass and not doing shitty work is a contribution to <laughs> the battle against coronavirus but more realistically like even just yeah helping make other people's work a little better and a little more calibrated and yeah. accurate and nuanced and whatever all of those are important contributions and helping the public sort through what to believe what not to like there's just yeah. so many little ways you don't have to be putting out new information in fact there's a lot of that already and arguably what we need more of is helping filter that. This is a tangent, but when you were talking about like adding nuance um, to other people's work, um, it made me think of an article that I read the other day in Forbes and it was about the um, frequency or it was like uh, reporting on the evidence that we have about the frequency of um, coronavirus cases that are asymptomatic. Um, but at one point in the article, the author um, makes a comparison to the flu. Um, and then they, they go on to say like, but coronavirus is not the flu. They're like, it's really not. Coronavirus is not the flu. Just to repeat, coronavirus is not the flu. <laughs> and I just like imagined like applying that to conclusions in scientific papers. Like imagine if you read that in a discussion question, like this is not a causal relationship. I repeat, this is not causal. We cannot draw causal conclusions from this data. I think that's a great lesson. I think yeah, that I know. Is the I lesson. think it would be like it was much more persuasive than like one throwaway sentence that was just like, right. but FYI. Speaking Alexa, of which, I feel like you've just solved the conundrum of our last episode. Yeah. Like I'm now that's that's going to be my reviewer two strategy. I'm just going to be like the limitations section. Just say it three more times. Right. right. <laughs> but we should mention that since we recorded that episode, there's a new preprint by a team of authors that includes Julia Rohr, who was the author of the paper we discussed last time, um, which I haven't read yet, but I think it would be, make a cool follow-up episode sometime about um, the kinds of causal inferences made in in psychological research and whether like a, the taboo against explicit causal talk is bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. This is kind of meta about the podcast, but like I'm, I'm sometimes surprised what topics seem to resonate and what don't so you know like last week it's like let's talk about directed acyclic graphs and <laughs> it seemed like I mean I I don't know what the like cross-section of our listeners thought but like there you know a couple people were like oh cool and I'm like yeah yeah we got some we got <laughs> we got some nerds listening to us you know um we are some nerds doing it so uh but you know it's just like it, it was like kind of cool to see people getting yeah. excited about that and uh, yeah when I saw Julia's uh that that new preprint I, I it was like right after we were I think it was after we recorded before we came out and I was yeah. like oh 
crap, if we'd recorded like a day later, we could have talked about this. Yeah, well, we can still do a follow-up episode on it. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to read true. the paper. We'll just, yeah, we'll have to read it first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we uh, move, move on and do our letter? Yeah, yeah, so maybe a bit of a caveat before I read our letter today. So it, it feels a little weird to be reading letters right now um, as if we're not in the middle of a pandemic. And this letter in particular is about being on the, on the job market. Um, but I sort of, I sort of thought that maybe it would be nice to still do letters that, um, are like back from when the world was normal. Um, partly because hopefully the world may be normal once again. Um, and then also, uh, because it's like sort of on, not everybody I think listens to the podcast right when it comes out and, and it might sort of like, uh, be nice to hear um, and consider things that are not coronavirus related um, to some degree. So, so here's a letter that feels um, a little out of place in the, the world that we currently live in. Um, hi, Black Goat. What advice do you have for somebody who loves research and open science practices, isn't super passionate about teaching, enjoys it, but really doesn't want it, um, it to be 80% of the job? And isn't all that picky about the domain of research? My research is pretty scattershot as it is, thus making me undesirable for our ones. I feel like the private sector may be the way to go, but I have not had much experience knowing how to enter into it, what types of jobs to look for, or whether my skill set, I do know R fairly well, as well as the kind of stats that any grad student would know, is sufficient. The other option I see is to exaggerate one's passion for teaching, hope it lands an academic job, and then just deal with it recognizing that pretty much any job makes one very fortunate. Sincerely, please don't hold this against me if I apply for your university. I do enjoy teaching, I promise. Um, so uh, so I guess this, this person is wondering um, what, one, one part of this person's question that I think is interesting is whether it's worth it to sort of like oversell um, your interest in teaching um, in order to just get any job um, and then um, just sort of like suffer through that because perhaps it's unlikely to have a job where you're doing a lot of research but have no teaching obligations. Um, I'm curious what you guys think about that. I think that that probably describes quite a high proportion of people's job applications um, that they're overselling sort of like how much of a priority teaching is to them. Um, Teaching statements all often read to me as like pretty um bsy i guess um so i think that that's pretty common yeah i assume this person is uh talking about non-r1 jobs because they have the caveat about how their scattershot research makes them undesirable for r1s because i think if they're applying for r1s they don't need to give much lip service to teaching sadly that's just not necessary or a big factor in those decisions you do need to show some competence and you know commitment to teaching but i don't think that someone who enjoys it pretty well just doesn't want to be 80 percent of their job would have to misrepresent themselves for an r1 um so i'm imagining that they're talking about applying to other kinds of academic jobs which i i know less about how people typically present themselves for those or what it takes or how easy it is to see through someone who is BSing the teaching part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because this person, they say they love research, but their research is scattershot. That's the word they use to describe it. And, and you know, um, and that, yeah, like you said, that for, for an R1, you're supposed to present yourself as programmatic, although, you know, there, there's some variation in how much, you know, there's sort of foxes and hedgehogs and that kind of thing, but you're supposed to act like you're a hedgehog. Um, and then, you know, they enjoy teaching. Not but... literally. I just want to clarify. <laughs> what? For people, not literally act like a hedgehog. Just, oh yes, sorry. The 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 fable that the right not not a well I don't know. I'm what just do, imagining all these people going on the R1 do? market like acting like hedgehogs, whatever that means. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> stay back. I'm prickly. Um, yeah, don't be prickly on your interview. I guess that's the uh, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a real lesson. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I 
I mean, to me, the so I'm you know reading reading into this. What they say they enjoy research, but they're not picky about the domain and scattershot. So what I'm fill to sort of fill in the blanks, and and I really like. I mean, I, I think this is something that is sort of underappreciated. My guess is that this is somebody who enjoys like the sort of problem solving right. aspect of research yeah. more than the like. And the problem solving in the more intermediate, what we would in, in a lot of research consider the intermediate sense. So like, you know, I mean, they don't say exactly, but they do say, you know, they know R and, and stats and whatever. But, you know, those kinds of things, designing studies, analyzing studies, um, but not necessarily like, oh, I want to make it my life's work to, you know, solve what I, or to, you know, study this one topic forever. To me, that sounds pretty well suited to industry um right and uh, i'm not saying there isn't a place for this person in, in academia too but like my impression from talking to people who work in industry is is that a lot of times and of course industry is an extremely broad term but at, at a lot of like tech places for example that's kind of what you're doing is like you have a project and you have a two or three week sprint on solving some question and you're applying your skill set and you're doing it as part of a team. Um, so you don't necessarily have to be on top of every aspect of it, but you're sort of working with people. And then you you get it done and you get it done good enough and, and you know, you go on to the next thing. Um, and, and what you're working on, you don't get to necessarily like choose the problem you solve in the way that you do in academia. I mean, I think you do to some degree, but a lot of it is driven by business needs. But like, if that's not what you're into, then that seems like that might actually be a better match than trying to have to like pretend you're programmatic about something just for the sake of like writing a research statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would also say, I, th- I think there are a lot of people who are really passionate about teaching. So I think that it would be kind of crappy to, to apply or like, I don't know. I mean, people have to do what they have to do to get jobs, but like, I do think there are people who really want those more teaching oriented academic jobs. And so I do think if there's a, another domain that does actually suit your goals and your strengths, then it would be better to aim for that. And yeah, in addition to industry, there's also uh, nonprofits and government jobs that have all the characteristics. I think that you described Sanjay. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think I wouldn't say to rule out our ones for this person, the, the sort of, cause sometimes I mean, this is, you know, I'm sort of taking what this person says at face value, but I think a lot of people do have the experience when they're getting towards the end of grad school feeling scattershot because they're so up close, they're seeing the trees and not the forest of what they do. And and there's also, there can be sometimes ways to sort of sell that as like, if, if you're more of a methodologist or a, you know, and they're starting to be like this year, we had a data science search, Arizona State had a data science search. And, and so there can be ways, they're not as common, but there can be jobs and ways to, to portray yourself as like more of a methodologist or a sort of how than a what kind of person mm-hmm. um, to sort of put a positive spin on it. Like, Maybe the common theme to all this "quote unquote" scattershot stuff was a sort of set of skill, technical skills that are themselves a sort of, you know, area where you can do scholarship about, you know, how you do this stuff. And so, so I wouldn't rule it out, but it's less of the conventional way that people sell themselves in our ones. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if twenty years from now there will be it will be more common for there to be academic jobs that sort of like suit this person's description. I mean I've heard this idea in a few different places that it would be, you know, that we could have um sort of like different streams of academics um or researchers, people who like focus more on ideas and people who focus more on problem solving and execution and things like that. And some people like uh, suggest that the separation of those things is actually really like important um, to uh, reduce things like bias and things like that. So in a in a world like that, it seems like this person would fit in really well as the the person who isn't like married to a particular domain or a research question um, and who is like more interested in the problem solving side of things. Although yeah, maybe I'm maybe I'm reading between the lines a little bit, um, but I do think that there are. Um, private sector jobs that have those characteristics. 
Um, and I know people who have jobs like that, who, um, who really like appreciate that aspect of their job, um, that they're moving quickly between different ideas. Um, and, uh, they're like solving concrete problems and things like that. And they're not teaching. So (laughs) cool. Anyone have anything else to add? No. All right, cool. Well, thank you. Uh, please don't hold this against me. If I apply to your university, I do enjoy teaching. I promise. Um, and uh yeah listeners if you have a a question for us and you know i mean uh, we don't know what the job market's going to look like in the future i i would say if you have job market questions still send them our way and we'll we'll do our best and and who knows uh uh and if it's a brave new world we'll we'll give you advice based on on how that's shaping up but um you can email us about anything uh, uh, that you uh, dilemma, query, anything like that. Letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. We are on Twitter at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod. We're on the web, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. And we're on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify. Um, and so you can find us all kinds of places. Um, cool. So... Our main topic today, we uh, it's this is based on an article, and and in in some ways this is kind of a follow up to a previous episode. So we about a year and a half ago or so we had an episode about trust in science and sort of public trust in science, and uh, so in some ways this is a, a little bit of a follow up, but it's an article uh, by Rachel Ankeny. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, who is a philosopher, I think, and historian, if uh, if I recall correctly. But the, the title of the article, which we'll post a link in the show notes, is Science in an Age of Skepticism, Coping with a New Age of Controversy. And it's taking kind of a conceptual critique of the idea of trust and whether that's the right thing to even be talking about in relation to science and uh, um, and and sort of talking about like alternatives, like what should we be like striving for in lieu of trust if that's not the right idea. Um, and so so we wanted to kind of talk about this this idea. It certainly feels relevant to the moment, you know, as we as we were talking about earlier in this episode that science is extremely relevant to a lot of stuff that's very real for people in the world right now and. Um, at least we as scientists believe it is. Uh, and so, you know, it seems, it seems topical, but it also seems kind of perennial as well. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you were the one that kind of yeah. found this article for us and brought it to us. What was it that sort of popped out at you when you first saw it? Uh, I thought there were a few new ideas I hadn't really thought of before. So one is whether science is even an appropriate target of trust. So she called it a category mistake to talk about trust mm-hmm. in science, or she says that maybe it's a category mistake. So like, just like you can't there are certain things that trust is not the right attitude to be talking about so like inanimate objects you don't talk about trusting inanimate objects but i think in the case of science the main argument why it might not be the appropriate target of trust is just because it's not one thing um so it does make sense sometimes to talk about trust in institutions but there isn't really an institution of science and there's a lot of heterogeneity across the sciences and so on Mm -hmm. but then she also talks a lot about um that that trust is the wrong concept or attitude word to be talking about um, because trust involves like vulnerability. And when you fail, when it fails, it's a betrayal. And there's like all these emotional aspects of it that maybe aren't relevant in the case of public attitudes towards science. And then also she talks about how in a trust relationship, there should be mutual respect. And she has some concerns about whether the scientific community has enough respect for the non-scientific public um so yeah all of those things i mean but basically she's not so much saying that the public shouldn't trust science or anything like that but just that's the wrong question and i think that's really interesting because we i feel like a lot of conversations in science and meta science are about the levels of trust and so on but not questioning the fundamental assumption that that's the right construct to be asking about um and yeah she has also some nice more specific points about like ways in which scientists don't make it easy for the public to trust us like triumphalist narratives about cures for cancer or other things like that and she mentions Mm -hmm. the replication crisis a bit too so i thought it was yeah just a neat um really accessible essay that helped me think differently about whether trust in science is even the right concept to be talking about i 
I thought that she made some interesting points along those lines, but I guess I wasn't really convinced that trust is not what we're talking about. Um, I feel like it's a question that's faced by every member of the public. Like if you hear about something on the news and you're told like this is coming from scientists or this is based on a scientific study. Um, I think the question of like, should that mean that you um, give it, give it extra credence or believe it more is like a question that will always exist. And so, I mean, yeah, I don't know. That is about trust, I think. Um, because it's like, do you, do you trust that? Um, and I agree with the point about heterogeneity and like, what are we, what do we really mean when we say science? Um, but to me, it's still like, obviously an important question to ask, um, whether science as an institution or science as a category of methodologies or, um, yeah, an umbrella term for methodologies is something that should give claims extra credibility. Um, but I feel like trust is too strong of a word. Like asking people to trust science to me, when, when someone asks for my trust, I feel like they're encouraging me not to be skeptical, not to, to question or doubt. I mean, this is I see kind of getting mean. into semantics, but I feel like there's, there might be a better word than trust. Like, well, I've... actually, I mean, I think that, I think that that's a good point. And I think maybe, so, um, near the end of the article, she starts talking about engagement as a different model. And I think that's consistent with what you're saying that like trust feels in some ways, although the relationship analogy falls apart here, but like a one way street where you are, you're asked to like put your faith in an institution or in someone else, um, without maybe like having the full means to evaluate the thing yourself. And I think what she's suggesting is that we should, be working harder to give the public the tools to evaluate things in themselves or evaluate aspects of the process or to participate in science and which is an idea that I love really like a lot. Um, so yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. I, I thought the, you know, so she's sort of critiquing this idea of trust in science because, you know, yeah, that that this idea of maybe a category error, and and what was interesting in the essay, she she goes through a few things that science isn't right, and so she says, you know, she says like we trust people, you know, like individual people, we trust institutions, and she kind of in in the sense of like you know I might trust my university or I might trust my government or whatever, and she kind of you know says that science isn't like a sort of entity kind of agent or whatever in that in that way and it's it's sort of interesting because i think to some extent like she's so she says a few in a few different ways what science isn't um she doesn't really say what science is and and i was really sort of struck by like i think some of this is you know some of this discussion really comes down to like you come to different answers depending on what you mean when you say science, right? So, so there's, you could mean, for example, a body of knowledge, a set of facts and theories that we have, that we say are scientific knowledge. You could say like scientists, like the people in the individual people doing science, are they trustworthy? Um, it could be the sort of, you could try to talk about it in sort of institutional terms as as like a set of uh, um, it's not one institution but it's like a sort of a collection or a network of interacting institutions universities and organizations and whatever and and I think the um, yeah and with those answers you know in some cases like maybe they shouldn't have trust and, and in other cases yeah that trust is the wrong term you know as I was thinking about it the the thing that I feel like when I, when I say the, the phrase trust in science, the thing that I think I'm talking about is like the, the social process of science, that this idea that, um, uh, and you know, and th- I mean, this is another thing she says it isn't, is this sort of like the scientific method singular as, and, and you know, she, she cites Naomi Oreskes. I think we've talked about Naomi Oreskes's view on this before it's it's i think in line with with paul Feyerabend that there's not like a single unifying scientific method that we all follow or whatever and and i i'm certainly i don't you know philosophers will like probably rightly like jump all over me if i 
claim that this is like the answer to the demarcation problem. But I, you know, when I think of like science, I think of sort of this, this eco, the social ecosystem of, you know, making evidence and theories open and critiquing them and how we sort of interact with each other. And, and a, it's a process or a system. And that's when I say like, I trust science, quote unquote, mm-hmm. that's kind of shorthand for like, I, I have a belief that when we follow that and do it right, it tends to more often than not produce pretty credible outcomes. Yeah. And, and when science, quote unquote, when science, the people, the institutions, the knowledge fail, it's because often we haven't followed that process well. I mean, the, the, arguably that's what the replication crisis was about, was us not being open and transparent and critiquing and having the ability to critique each other and then doing that, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's a, uh, I totally understand why, like, that's kind of a weird, maybe that's my, like, idiosyncratic. And when other people say, like, I believe science, they mean, like, global warming, like, the th- or climate change, like, yeah. the theory, the fact of this thing that's come out of science. And that's a very different kind of thing to ask, should we trust or not, versus the process that produced it. Yeah. I mean, I do think, like, the question of what we mean by science is interesting. But I think even if we all agreed on your definition, which is also mine, and I think Naomi Oreskes is that, like, in the end, whatever trust there is comes from trust in the process, the social norms and so on. But I still think trust is the wrong word now that I think about it. Like you have confidence in that process when it's carried out, but like, I don't know, there's something about trust that feels more emotional and more, I mean, she talks about this too, that it's not a rational thing. Whereas I think your confidence is based on your reasoning about whether it deserves a lot of weight and, and so on yeah you know that's a really interesting because i i i you know when i think about like like karl popper tried to deductively show that there was like using sort of classical logic that you know modus tollens blah 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 and and that's I, that's not, you know, it, it, this idea that within a formal system of logic, you can prove that science is right or whatever. That's not what I'm thinking. And I don't think that's what you're no. thinking either. So it is kind of an interesting, it's in this sort of in-between place where it's not, it not, it isn't, yeah, it's not like an emotional leap of faith, but it's also not like a, I can deductively prove that this system no, does X, but it's y, like and Z. everyday confidence. Like, we ne- we yeah. almost never use like deductive logic. But I still yeah. think that, that there's something in. useful about the word trust because it implies that you. C- so I mean, we were talking about this earlier, um, and I, I I love like an ideal system where everybody has all of the information and no trust is necessary, and we can all just like you know draw conclusions collectively. Um, but that's not realistic, and so like we are in situations where there's an asymmetry in the amount of expertise and information that people have. And so trust feels appropriate in that you, you have to, yeah, believe that the person is, um, whatever, whatever it means in the specific case, like being transparent with you, they, um, they're like capable of doing the kind of study that they're doing. They're capable of interpreting the kind of results. They're not, they're not like biased by their own agenda. Like we, we always have to have that. Um, yeah, it's rare instances where we don't need to like trust in some aspects of other people's work. So like, I mean, right now, as we are, um, like bombarded with, um, people's claims about COVID-19 and like what this means for how we should behave and like what the prospects are for our vaccine and like all of these kinds of things. I mean, I definitely feel like um, a trust in the scientists who are working on this process. And I also think that it's somewhat emotional too. And so when, when scientific studies are contrasted with like what seems to be the experience based claim of certain governors, for instance, like I, I do like have this reaction where I want to say we should be trusting scientists over, people who are just relying on their own personal experience or their own intuitions. Yeah. yeah. I think what I don't like about trust is that to me, it has a very strong connotation of being relatively black and white, that there aren't, there's not as much room for degrees of trust. Like Mm. in interpersonal relationships, like you basically either trust someone or you don't. I mean, 
there is some room for degree, but not a lot. And I feel like a lot of the messaging around science communication is very I, black uh, and white, like the March for Science and the signs that say like science is real or whatever. Yeah. And I feel like if we used a different word than trust, that might help make people feel like it's okay yeah. to not always believe science and to not always take it at face value and to sometimes have doubts or whatever. Right. So and that's to that why, point, to actually. Me, confidence is a little bit more linear yeah. or continuous of a variable than trust. Right. Yeah. I, I see that. And I also like, I have the same, so maybe this is the kind of thing that you're talking about. Like sometimes I'll have students in class who are, you know, like baffled that somebody could believe a certain thing and they're like, come on, like science Mm -hmm. as if like they're putting this like science stamp on it. And now it's like Mm -hmm. obviously true. And to ignore the science stamp is like to have your head in the sand. And that always makes me cringe because I think for exactly the reasons that you're describing that, like it's too too much of like a blanket statement and too black and white. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I can't remember. This reminds me a little bit of, uh, I can't remember if it was in a debate or in her accept nomination acceptance speech, but in, I remember in 2016, there was this moment where Hillary Clinton said, I believe in science. Mm. And I remember there was this, like, I, I think I was, I, th- I think I was on Twitter as that happened. Cause I just remember seeing on Twitter, there was this like bifurcation among scientists where some people were like, yes, thank you. Somebody's standing up for us. And the, and uh, then there was this other thread of people who were like cringe, like belief is the wrong word. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a, and I, 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 I probably most people had some of both. I certainly had some of both. Right. Uh, um, but I, I, you know, when I, so like belief is a really interesting word too. Like when mm-hmm. I talk to students, I try to avoid using the word belief or especially believe in. So, so, you know, I try to like sub in, like I am, you know, like, do you believe in evolution? Well, I, I am persuaded by the evidence for evolution, um, or for evolutionary theory or what have you. So, so sort of like sub in persuaded by, you know, personalize it, whatever. And this feels a little similar to that. This, this trust idea, it's, a, it's more subtle. I think that it also matters what whether we're talking about science as a whole or specific things because that what you were saying Samin about it feeling black and white. I feel I feel like it's more graded when we're talking about like a specific thing. Like I very much trust the consensus on climate change. I somewhat trust, you know, some other things or whatever blah 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 and and that feels okay, but it does feel like yeah. And may, I don't know, maybe, maybe you could say I somewhat trust science. Well, the, as a the other thing, the other way in which it's graded, yeah. and this goes to what Alexa was saying about like how, you know, with COVID-19, for example, like I'm more confident in the scientific information than a lot of other information coming out, but I'm still not very confident in scientific information. And, and COVID-19 is a rare case where the scientists themselves are admitting that there's a lot of uncertainty. And so I think that's why like a graded, I mean, that's another reason why a graded way of expressing it some construct that lends itself better to degrees and to compare so like i can easily say i'm more confident in the scientists evaluations of what we should do than in the politicians evaluations of what we should do with respect to covid19 but like it's not really as simple as i just trust the scientists but so then maybe there are there are different uses for these two words right because i can imagine not that this is the case in in this specific example that you gave but you could imagine a scenario where you like very you 100% trust uh let, let's say like a scientist or a lab or a media outlet or whatever um but you're still like not confident in the findings perhaps precisely because the way that they're presenting the findings is with an appropriate amount of uncertainty right, right? and but very maybe... often it's the opposite where i don't yes, trust a science or a whatever but i can still be confident in some findings, like when the evidence is overwhelming, I actually think the process, you know, like, let's say my field, like I don't, I think we haven't figured out all problems. We don't have very good, reliable social norms about criticizing and correcting and so on. I'm still confident in some of the findings that come out. Uh So yeah, I think confidence and trust can come apart in in both of those ways. Mm -hmm. So, so she, what do you guys think of this, you know, what she's proposing as a replacement for talking about trust in science is engagement. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, you know, what we should be going for is not getting people to trust or or not trust, whatever, that that that's the wrong continuum, the wrong dimension. What we should be going for is getting people more engaged. And, and there, you know, there's something, you know, I was trying to think like, 
aside from being a different word, what's different about that. And some of it is like trust is like a, it's an attitude or a stance towards something. Whereas engagement is like a dynamic. It's a relational dynamic. Um, and so it's, it's more, you know, it's more verby than adjective or something. I don't know if that's quite, or it's more active or dynamic, mm-hmm. right? That, that like, um, and it's, you know, it's certainly, it's, it, in that way of thinking about it, 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 I mean, cause I'm preparing to teach scientific thinking, which is like our, our sort of first research methods course. And, and the idea of engagement really resonated with me because that's really what I'm going for. Like, I'm not going in there. Like, it's great if, you know, in the everyday sense, like it's great if I hope people come out like feeling good about science and trusting science. But what I'm trying to accomplish in the classroom isn't like persuasion in the direction of trust what i'm trying to accomplish in the classroom is like giving my students tools to think about science and understand it Mm -hmm. and and be engaged and so from a teacher perspective but of course that's like i have a captive audience well now they're not captive because they're all going to be watching me asynchronously online but you know what i mean like I, i you know i have this like interested group of students they're they're there specifically to be educated it's a somewhat different matter to talk about the general public. Um, but I, I found that to be a really interesting and maybe, you know, maybe you don't have to see it as a either or maybe you can have trust and engagement, but certainly as a sort of a thing that we should be focusing more on is this idea of not asking this, the public for their trust, but trying to approach them in a spirit of engagement. Right. Yeah. Um, I like that idea a lot. And I think it is like an echo of something that people often try to accomplish when they're teaching. So, you know, we're trying to teach people how to learn and not just this material. We're trying to teach people critical thinking. Um, In science classes, maybe we're trying to teach people to understand how to like evaluate and critique scientific work more so than just like, you know, wanting people to remember these specific findings. Um, And so like extending that to the public um, seems very worthwhile to me. And I feel like goes along with the, the goal of having increasing transparency in science. Um, you know, the more that the, the public can see what goes into a scientific study, um, or even have some say in that, which is something that, um, has always struck me as strange about, um, at least our field is that, um, the vast majority of the work we do is, um, the public has no say in that, but they often fund the work that we do. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I love that model. Um, and then there's also part of me that's, that still thinks, um, that people should be allowed to not be engaged and still be able to have confidence in trust. I don't know what word we're trying to use now. Um, the findings that they that they read and well we in often use media. proxies right like i'll trust something if my brother who's much more expert in politics and law he's a lawyer right you know so like i don't need to engage with that i'll trust his opinion most of the time so yeah i don't think we all but i think for people who want to critically evaluate stuff themselves i think it would be really interesting so when i teach research methods one of the activities we do is we do the monty hall problem where there are three doors and there's a prize right. behind one and goats behind the other two so first, we talk about what their intuition is about the right thing to do, whether to switch or not. And then they talk to each other and try to convince each other. And then we talk about, like, did that change your mind? Then I try to explain to them. No, I can't remember the order. But at one point, I try to explain to them using logic and reasoning why switching is the best approach. And mm-hmm. then we also do actual. So they pair up. It's a class of 250 students. They pair up, do 10 trials each where they switch or stay. And they don't know whether they won or not, so they don't get any feedback. We collect all that data, and I show that when you switch, you're much more likely to win than when you stay. And then mm-hmm. I ask if that convinced them. And then, like, when it doesn't, I want to know, like, what would convince you? What, Like, what are your doubts still? And what would mm-hmm. prove you wrong? What would prove me wrong? And I think it would be cool if for, like, really important... And for scientific findings that the scientists are quite confident in and have good reason to be, and the public is still skeptical, I think it would be really fascinating to be like, okay, what are your alternative explanations? What are the things that are still in the way of you having confidence in this? How can we either di- you know, dispel those or prove those right and, and prove ourselves wrong? Mm-hmm. How can we put those to the test in a way that makes both of our positions falsifiable? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be a really fascinating public exercise, like exercise in dialogue with the public, asking them what evidence they want. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be fascinating too. Um, especially if you could ask that question in a way that made it, um, made people feel like they were allowed to say things like, you know, I would really believe this if my pastor told me, you know, Um, because certainly that is the case. And also, I mean, this is just sort of like an aside, but um, I wonder how much we know the answer to that. Surely we know a part of the answer, Um, but I'm not sure that I could tell you definitively like what would convince me of something or I could I could give you general answers surely but yeah no a lot of those are going to be like rationalizations or yeah like for me if you ask me why I believe something and I tell you and then you refute that I might not I might very well not change my belief right exactly because like yeah it's hard to know how um yeah how evidence is going to impact you before it's real yeah 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 and probably there are some things where we won't be able to overcome people's other sources of information, their intuition, their the authorities that they trust, and so on. Mm-hmm. And and something that's I think really interesting about the way she's framing the article is that um, you know there there's one way of thinking of this that we want to engage the public because we know a lot and and we want them to get the most out of science. But she very much is making also making the argument in the other direction that science needs the engagement for its benefit too right. that that yeah. there are yeah. things Absolutely. that people know who are not scientists who are outside of science it reminded me a lot of you know the the whole idea of like community engagement in in especially in like health research right where you know you you want the community involved telling you what's actually going on what what's the context for this what are the important problems that people care about what are the problems or questions that should even be on the table as things we're considering and that you know what are the value systems and priorities and and that's you know science doesn't answer those questions that that has to come from somewhere else yeah and i think this is part of the hubris of scientists that i think we feel like we need to convince people that science is the only valid way of knowing and sometimes we want to shut out other ways Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the cool things about the COVID-19 situation is that like there are a lot of non-scientists providing information or things and so, in some cases it's terrible and it's leading people astray but some of it is is valid um and yeah I think like we need to let go of the idea that scientific knowledge is the only kind of valid knowledge or, or even right. separate from other kinds of knowledge like we do need to do a better job of incorporating other mm-hmm. sources of or that it should always trump other knowledge, right? Like, right. Um, you know, somebody's expert opinion might be more valuable than a shitty psychology study or a shitty scientific study. Mm-hmm. So, Samin, you raised something earlier that I want to come back to, which is, you know, we're, we're talking about engagement, and I, th- I think that sounds really appealing to us because we're scientists. We're on a daily basis engaged in science. That's kind of how we live our lives. Um she also, she's not a scientist, I don't think, but she's a, like a philosopher of science. So she also spends all of her life engaged in science. Um, and you raise this point to me that like not everybody, I, there, and I think this is something that we might, even though she's very critical in some ways, this might be a sort of shared assumption or bias or whatever, <clears throat> that like not everyone wants to be engaged maybe, or maybe we should at least be considering that, right? And it it yeah. reminds me a lot of like, in political discussions where, you know, people who have very different views about politics, um, but who are engaged in politics have certain things in common that people who just, that's not a big part of their interest or their life are different right. about, right? The, the actual, the structure of thinking about politics is different among the highly engaged. Like there are, the correlations between different attitudes are different among people who talk a lot about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you know, what is like, so maybe a critique of the idea of engagement is like, not everybody has time for that. Exactly. And maybe they don't want to. And so what, what should we like, is that is that a perspective we should be considering? And then what's the answer? Like, I think that an engagement model can't ignore the fact that some people will not want to be engaged, or won't have the means to be particularly engaged. So I don't think that's, I mean, when I was talking earlier about, um, about how I like that model, but I think that it's unrealistic to think that it could apply to everyone. I think one implication of that is that you have to take that into account when you create that model. So you still have to be responsible to people who are not engaged or not informed. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what that ends up looking like, probably, just just my intuition, is that people who don't want to engage pick people to trust, and right. those people become their kind of uh, barometer for what to believe, yeah. like the same way I do with political and legal stuff with my brother. Um, and I think that's why it's all the more important to not have this rah-rah attitude about science, because mm-hmm. at least, like, People who care enough, maybe they, they don't want to be engaged for whatever reason, but they care enough that they want a calibrated source to pin their confidence to, they're going to be turned off by the like raw, raw, triumphalist, like every scientific discovery is a miracle and we should believe it and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think even for those people, and maybe especially for those people who aren't going to engage themselves directly, it's important that we have we give others the ability to be calibrated the right, the, the, like the, the, we make it clear that it's okay for them to question and doubt some scientific claims so that, mm-hmm. because those people are going to be looked to by others as, and so it's important for them to be able to be calibrated so that others can use them as a gauge. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I feel like yeah, I'm not being I, very clear. I, no, no, I, I think, I mean, I feel like it's both, right? So I, I think there are some people who, you know, because they have other interests, they're busy, whatever, that that they're going to be like, come on, don't blow sunshine up my ass. Just like, be real with me. Um, and, and that's one kind of sort of trust or authority for the people that can't or don't want to do the engagement. But there's also people want to be, feel a connection to someone who's, you know, got stature people want to feel like they're a part of something exciting or that that you know they just want to feel good about something and so in some I mean I think some of the like hurrah science is in some ways trying to tap into like or maybe that's not what the intent is but it has the potential to sort of yeah reach people who aren't going to engage but who for whom that is what they're looking for yeah i think where it gets damaging is this implication that if you're not cheerleading for science then you're anti-science and she talks about that too like just because like i don't want to march for science or i'm not like i don't believe every scientific claim or i'm skeptical i think there are flaws or whatever doesn't make me anti-science so i'm okay with people who like just focus on promoting the claims they're confident in and don't do a lot of criticism or whatever, that's fine. Um, but I don't think they should be discouraging other people from saying, oh yeah, well, I don't believe this one, or I don't believe this one. Um, because I think if there's this attitude among scientific community and those engaged with scientific community that we all need to like pr- present a united front to show how great science is, yeah, right. then the people who don't want to engage yeah. are going to be like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to listen to any of you because no one's telling me the truth. Yeah. Um, so I think having having dissenting voices within the scientific community and the people who are engaged with science and showing that, like, look, there are issues on which we disagree. Not everybody who's engaged and informed comes to the same conclusion. But right. also, yeah, having times when we're like, oh, yeah, we totally got it wrong. I think that will increase. As, if I was thinking about, like, politics or something where I don't have the expertise to engage or the time or the bandwidth or whatever, it, I, it would be it would put me at ease to know that, the people I do have to put my trust in in that community are going to sometimes be like, oh, yeah, yeah. I was wrong about this. There are like checks and balances. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I think uh, I don't I don't think there's one strategy that's going to work for yeah. everybody because I, I think I don't think I think you the attitude you just described, Samin, is some people who are not going to be engaged in science, but there are other people who are going to be like they're not going to want that, you know? Um, And I I think this idea that there's one model, whether we're cheerleading, whether we're presenting just calibrated endpoint conclusions, whether we're engaging people in the process, like none of those are going to reach everybody. Um, And, and I think I probably land on the things that are more aligned with my outlook and values, which is critique and skepticism. Um, Right. But yeah, I don't know that there's like one universal answer to this question. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think, I think that's my beef with the cheerleading approach. It's not the cheerleading itself. It's that sometimes the message is everyone should be cheerleading. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're, yeah. The, you said, you said it really well that like you're, if you're not cheering with us, you're anti-science. Um, that's where it gets like really annoying. Right. If you're not with us, you're against us. 
Generally uh, a bad attitude. Great. <laughs> Generally, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Anyone have anything to add? I think we're coming up on the hour. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, for uh, uh, tuning in again. And uh, you've been listening to The Black Goat. We'll look forward to talking to you again next time. Mm-hmm.